this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Sedmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. So we are well into this coronavirus mess, and we've surpassed over a million people with with uh, positive cases, 75,000 dead and counting. And um, the big the big argument raging around the country is what do we do about opening up? It's still going on. Uh, this conversation is a tough one, and it, it really is a tough balance. The unemployment numbers came out this week, 14.7%, which is unbelievable. We haven't seen unemployment like that since 1940, I believe. And um, even Trump's own own economic analyst inside the, the White House, Kevin Haskett, predicts that next month it'll be worse. So, you know, it's a tough time right now, but we all need to just continue to stay strong, pay attention to science. And, you know, I just feel like we really, really have to be careful that we don't become desensitized to sacrificing people's lives to open a barbershop or hair salon or get your nails done or go out to eat again. I know people's livelihoods are at at stake but it's 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 tough, you know. You don't want to be callous and just kind of disregard lives. But we also can't stay in lockdown forever. So that's the ongoing battle this week. Um, coming up on this week's episode, we have two guests. I have two guests, and so you get a twofer this week. You've got Juliette Kayem, who is a former. Department of Homeland Security official under the Obama administration. She is also a CNN um, national security security analyst and a Harvard professor. So we've become friends through CNN and then also during my time at Harvard. So she is, she's been ahead of the curve on all of this. She's been warning folks about what happens if you don't have a coordinated response. And she's been writing fantastic articles for The Atlantic outlining what should be happening, where the government is failing on the response, the coronavirus response. And she, uh, she also responded this week on CNN. She's been all over the place because she's kick ass and I love it. She's, you know, no nonsense. And I I appreciate that about Juliet because that's what we need. We need people who tell it like it is. She doesn't candy coat stuff and she knows what she's talking about. She's an expert, but she was talking about, you know, she predicted ahead of time that Donald Trump would most likely start to um, deny or dismiss the uh, death toll numbers because it's been reported that he wants to wind down the coronavirus task force. Well, sure. Why does he want to do that now? I mean, the epidemic is not under control. (laughs) Like states are talking about opening, but the CDC's own guidelines are not being followed to do that. So Trump has shifted because... He's just going to say he's going to gaslight the American people into believing, well, everything's fine now. You know, yeah, some people are going to die, but oh, well, we've got to open the economy back up. Oh, well, I mean, there's hundreds of people still dying every day in New York and New Jersey. And now the Midwest is starting to see their cases spike, right? Meatpacking plants and poultry processing plants in the Midwest having hundreds of cases. Yeah, it's coming to them now. No one's immune. But Trump wants you to believe, oh, well, you know oh, well, you're on your own. Like, that's that's nuts. That's, that's crazy talk. So Juliet's been ahead of the curve, very prescient on a lot of things. You know, I'm sure she was probably one of those people who was like, I wish I wasn't right about this because that means it's bad for the country, which is what I've said about my predictions with Trump over the years. 
So I get it. I get the feeling. But great conversation with Juliet about kind of um, where we are and some of the tough choices and what she, how she sees the situation right now. <clears throat> how she sees the situation right now. The second interview is with the one of the co-founders of the Lincoln Project. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Lincoln Project is a PAC that was started by former Republican consultants. Um, I sit on the senior advisory committee for it, and George Conway, um, Rick Wilson, some names you may know, um, John Weaver, Steve Schmidt, and Reed Galen. So Reed Galen is going to be with me today to talk about how the Lincoln Project came about, what happened this week. The president of the United States attacked the Lincoln Project for a really powerful ad that we put out <laughs> called Morning in America. If you haven't seen it, Google it. It's spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Morning, that like that, not morning the way Reagan did it. And uh, it really got under Donald Trump's skin. He went on a tweet storm at one o'clock in the morning earlier in the week, attacking the co-founders of the Lincoln Project by name went after George Conway because everyone knows he's married to Kellyanne and this ongoing War of the Roses feud that's very much in public. Um, it was pretty remarkable and it just gave more attention to the ad and more people, millions of views now and lots of money was raised. And our goal is to defeat Donald Trump in November. So Reed is here to with me to talk about... Um, well, on this episode, he's here to uh, discuss kind of what happened and and where the idea for the ad came from and the, the origins. A little talk a little bit more about the Lincoln Project, because I just I just think it's a worthy cause and that pe- more people should know. And I'm happy to be a part of it. So that's what's coming up on this episode. And I uh, <laughs> read is read is cool. I um, I'm glad to, to to be able to work with all of them. Uh, what else is going on? Um, I'm going to just go, go through a couple of things and my thoughts on a couple of things before I get into the interviews, because it's, there's two interviews this time. So I'm going to keep my remarks a bit brief. Um, we heard that the that there has been two White House staffers that have now tested positive for coronavirus, a valet for the president um, there. I've never heard the term valet. I always thought they were Navy stewards, but I, um, I guess I was wrong or maybe they have a different function in the White House. But these are people who are like personal assistants kind of to the president and his staff, um, to the president and his family. You know, they bring them meals, they bring them things like they're very interactive hands on with the president. So, you know, Trump has been an ass and decided that, oh, he's too cool to wear a mask. He doesn't need one because I guess he thinks it makes him look weak or whatever sick, twisted reason he has for that. But, you know, everyone else is supposed to wear a mask, but no, 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 not Donald Trump, you know. And uh, one of his valets tested positive. That's not good. And one of Mike Pence's, um, his press secretary, she tested positive. By the way, she's Stephen Miller's wife. I know he, somebody married him. That's a whole other thing. But yeah, Katie Miller. It's an, it's, you know, invading the White House. They get tested regularly, according to the White House. And everyone, know everyone's, you know, not positive or they've been negative. Well, I don't know how long they're going to be able to tempt fate. Trump went out to Arizona this week to go to a mask production factory and where everyone was wearing masks there, except for him, like an ass. It was ridiculous. Him and like other staff, uh, White House staff that was accompanying him. What what kind of message does that send? 
And they were playing Live and Let Die in the background, like blasting in, in the factory. It was very surreal, all of it. It was, I was like, that should be the new, the new campaign slogan for the Trump campaign 2020. Forget Make America Great Again. It should be Live and Let Die, Vote Trump 2020. Because <laughs> that's about where we're at. Good grief. And then you had Mike Pence, who was delivering PPE boxes to a local hospital in the D.C. area. No gloves, no mask, no social distancing. No one around him had on gloves or a mask. He, he delivered the boxes. He unloaded them off a van and, like, wheeled them over to the front. He didn't go in the hospital. But still, what kind of message is this? It's just absurd. Absurd. So, you know, we'll see what happens with that. But it's, um, this, it goes to show you the importance of testing, right? People in the White House, the president, VIPs, they get tested all the time. Well, shouldn't the American people have the same access to these tests? How do you justify opening the economies, opening these different states when you don't have this kind of testing readily available to regular people? It doesn't make sense. So... But Trump tries to dismiss testing and then he lies about how much testing is available in the country. But then he tries to, I mean, double talk it about, well, we don't really need it anyway. And sometimes they're wrong. And which is it? Every scientific expert, doctor, epidemiologist, infectious disease, anyone worth their salt in that in this area of expertise will tell you that you cannot have a sane, responsible reopening plan without some kind of testing and contact tracing in place, without a vaccine. You just can't. So you're rolling the dice. A lot of these states are rolling the dice by opening prematurely. And we're going to see in a couple of weeks what that looks like in places like Georgia and Florida and others that opened up so quickly. I don't know. It's it's a gamble, and I just don't know if that's a gamble that's worth it at this point. So we'll, we'll see. But yeah, the, coronas, the coronavirus task force is, um, it, it, it's on the chopping block. At first, Trump was like, yeah, we're winding it down. We don't need it anymore. Because I guess if he feels like, if no see, hear, hear no evil, see no evil, right? If we don't acknowledge there's a pandemic still happening, we don't have the coronavirus uh, task force meetings anymore, then that means it goes away, I guess, in his mind. I don't know. But then he turned around and said, oh, but they get great ratings. He gave this like off-the-rails interview with the New York Post earlier in the week where he's going on and on and on about his ratings and the coronavirus task force ratings and sick, very sick stuff. People are dying still, hundreds by the day, and he's going on and on worrying about ratings. But then he said, okay, well, they'll they'll come back every once in a while. It's just not going to be daily. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, because the president's hired a new press secretary. Kaylee McEnany. You guys remember her? Any of you who listen to this podcast who have been following me since the 2016 election will be very familiar with the name Kaylee McEnany. She and I used to battle it out all the time on CNN. I used to destroy her because she was a nobody that came out of nowhere, that had no political experience whatsoever, never had a real political job. She was a professional student, basically who transferred to Harvard Law School, by the way. She likes to tell people she went to Harvard, but she transferred in, but anyway. And she really, I mean, she was one of those people who made the decision that it would further her career if she 
did a 180 and decided to support Donald Trump. And CNN has come out and shown video of her back in 2015, where she was talking about racist comments Trump made and that she wasn't going to claim him and, you know, all the things that most of us felt in the beginning. And then she made a calculated decision that the best way to get herself in on um, the head of the head of the line was to be a Trump kiss ass. And that's what she became. She was such a propagandist and CNN hired her. They gave her a shot. And unfortunately, we were colleagues, I use that term loosely, during the 2016 election. It was very frustrating for me because she was just so dishonest every day. And I easily knocked down her bullshit talking points because that's all she was. It was She was just a living, breathing list of talking points that she memorized that day. But I actually worked in politics for 20 plus years. I actually have experience in the, a lot of the topics we'd been talking about. So when I spoke, I spoke from a position of authority and experience, not just some talking points I memorized that day that if someone challenged me on them, I couldn't, co- I couldn't combat them because I, all I did was memorize the talking points. So if you don't know the real world implications or what the po- actual policy implications of whatever it is you're arguing, all you do is repeat the same thing over and over again, you know, and that's what she used to do. And that frustrated a lot of people. Not everybody could handle her. She's very good at what she does, but what she does is dishonest. And it's, a, and it's, it's North Korea level propaganda. And it was, I mean, if you want, if people want to go down memory lane, they can just go to YouTube and Google me and Kaylee or Google me destroying a <laughs> Trump surrogate. Um, there's lots of videos of that. Lots of them, because I would call her ass to the carpet all the time, take her to task. And she really couldn't handle me. She didn't know what to do. So I know she dreaded when I used to have to sit next to her or she sit next to me on panels on Anderson show or whatever. But yeah, she was exhausting. And, and just there are very few people who I can't stand in politics. You know, I can disagree with you. And we can still be cool and be friends and just have political disagreements. She's not one of those people. She's just so, uh, just everything about her was so off-putting and insincere and fabricated and dishonest that I, I could, I never spoke one word to this girl off camera. Never. I spoke as few words as possible when we had to on air. And that was it. In between commercial breaks, getting mic'd up. I never spoke one word. I didn't even acknowledge her. That's how bad it was. Because I'm not fake. I can't fake it. If I don't like you, I don't like you. I'm sorry. And it takes a lot for me to not like someone that much. She was one of them. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, <laughs> now that she's the press secretary, we have to put up with her every day or however often they trot her out in front of the cameras And I just hope that the media doesn't let her get away with turning these into let's bash the media, propaganda sessions, um, basically mini campaign, campaign surrogate sessions for the White House, because that's what they're starting to turn into. So I'm hoping it's only been a week and, um, you know, she presents well, I give her credit for that, but that's about as far as it goes because she's full of shit. So and dishonest. (laughs) I think I could say that enough, but um, I just hope the press you know, figures it out and doesn't let her continue just throw all these things back at them and turn it around on them all the time. And then they just stay silent. I really hope that they start calling her 
a bit more and putting her on the spot because she's the type that'll tell you that the sun is purple and make you look like the asshole because you're like, no, the sun is not purple. And she'll be like, yes, it is because Donald Trump's the president and he's the greatest president ever. And he said it's purple and I believe him. She's that bad. So (laughs) buckle in folks. You've got, we're stuck with her until November 3rd. So I just wanted to say something about that. (laughs) Oh boy. At least I don't have to deal with her anymore. She was, see the thing about it though, is that she was, she was easy and that I could predict how to, what she would say, because we have to remember, I was a Republican communications person for many years. I knew I could anticipate what the arguments were going to be. So that's why she was never ready for me. So, I mean, it was a bit of a, a of a game, but it, it just got exhausting because it was like, stop with the lies every day. My God, with this girl. So yeah, stuck with her now until November on the taxpayer's dime, which is just infuriating. Speaking of infuriating, um, a little bit on Trump's decision to, uh, not Trump, well, indirectly, the Department of Justice's decision, Bill Barr, Trump's toady, his decision to drop the Flynn, Michael Flynn case after three years. General Michael Flynn was uh, pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russian, the Russian ambassador Kislyak. This was something that the Russians also knew because the conversations were recorded. Why, if everything was up and up, on the up and up, why are you lying? So for three years, this has been all through the mother report and everything. He was, he was cooperating. I mean, the Flynn case is an interesting one. I might decide to, to delve into that a little bit more. I'm not going to do that on this one because there's a lot of detail involved. But here's the bottom line. Michael Flynn lied to the FBI. He was acting as a foreign agent for Russia and Turkey, which doesn't get talked about enough. He um, was dishonest about it. He was not entrapped. And he he pled guilty twice in a court of law, admitting that he did. The president of the United States fired him because he lied to the vice president about those contacts and to the FBI. That's why they fired him. He lasted three weeks about as national security advisor in the beginning of the Trump campaign. He got fired as the head of the DIA, the the Defense Intelligence Agency under Obama. The guy is a loose cannon. He's not a warrior. He's not some hero. And these idiot Trump people actually try to compare him to Nelson Mandela. Just just stop. You know, I mean, it's, it's outrageous. I don't get it. They think that the Michigan protesters, these people that are protesting to reopen the country, reopen the uh, states are like Rosa Parks. They made that comparison too. Now it's Nelson Mandela. Yo, stop co-opting the struggles and the persecution of black folks to try to justify your asinine behavior. Just cut it out because there's no comparison. So stop it. But Michael Flynn, he was waiting sentencing for the last two years. And then when Bill Barr came in, he's been doing Trump's bidding. Trump doesn't want him convicted. And so instead of having to pardon him, he got Bill Barr to put pressure on the, the prosecutors to finally drop the case. It's outrageous. It's a miscarriage of justice. And everyone should be horrified by this. And if it weren't for the fact that we're in the middle of a freaking global pandemic, there'd be a lot more outcry about what happened with the Flynn case. It's turning the Justice Department into a kangaroo court, and it's really a shame. People who are career prosecutors who worked at the DOJ, they are 
beside themselves about this. And they should be. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Speaking of um, terrible, this shooting um, video down in Georgia of uh, Ahmad Arbery. So the shooting happened in February. An unarmed 25-year-old black guy was jogging. He was stalked by these two racists, a father and a son, who claimed that he was he matched the subscription. Uh, I mean, uh, description of a robbery, sub, a burglary uh, suspect. Come to find out, none of that was true. It was no burglary or robbery or anything like that. It was he would you know it was a a camera on a construction site. They thought that it was him. Even still, what are you doing, vigilantes? He wasn't doing anything but jogging through the park. They tracked him and they attacked him and they got into a struggle and this was caught on video and um, he was shot in the struggle because I guess they went after him and he tried to fight him off with this shotgun and uh, he got shot and it's all on video and he was killed. Well, the guys weren't arrested initially. This happened back in February because one of the father was a retired law enforcement officer and you know how that goes. They were, they were doing him a favor and they tried to justify that it was a justified shoot, justified shoot, and they never arrest, arrested him. It wasn't until there was a national outcry because the video finally went public uh, this week. And now they're finally arrested. But there's a lot of cronyism, cahoot stuff going on there. And um, I hope that there's, there's justice finally done now that there's a national spotlight on it. But not okay what happened there and um you know we pray for the family of of Ahmad Arbery and and uh, pray that justice is served in that case so i'm going to continue to keep an eye on that unless something else sh- comes up that i don't that i'm a- unaware of unless you know we find out that he had a gun on him or something i don't i cannot imagine what the defense would be at this point other than two racist assholes deciding to murder a young black guy in Georgia it's um while, while jogging. Horrible. And not okay. Something else that's not okay, and I think this is a good lead-in to my interview with Juliet, is another, this was a, another one of those weeks, news weeks, where like, so many things were going on. It's hard to keep track of it all. But another huge news week, um, another event, there was a whistleblower who came forward. Now, we heard about this guy. His name was Dr. Uh, Rick Bright. And I want to get the agency he was with correct here. He was with the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. What do they do? They were in charge of the vaccine. Um, They're the agency that, that comes up with vaccines and things like that. And they were working very hard on the coronavirus vaccine. And he's been the head of this organization for four years. Experienced doctor. And he blew the whistle on the fact that Trump and his lackeys were pressuring him to invest money in anti-malarial drugs like hydroxychloroquine and others with no scientific merit. And he was like, no, we're not going to steer our resources and money to these unproven um, medications and things because the president thinks so or his buddies, his cronies, buddies have companies that were, that are willing to make this when it doesn't have any scientific merit. No, I'm not doing it. He was pressured to do it. He was also pressured by Jared Kushner. Yes, Kushner is anytime he's involved in something, you know, it's corrupt as hell. And 
pushing, you know, a, a story came out in the Times about how Jared Kushner and his shadow coronavirus task force was doing all kinds of sh- cronious shit behind people's backs and, and, and procuring protective equipment and tests for doing political favors, basically, while the real corona task force was trying to do stuff for the American people. I mean, if that's not a microcosm of the way this dishonest um, administration handles everything, I don't know what is. It's all one big grift. And Dr. Bright called it out. He spoke up finally and, and filed a formal complaint because they removed him. And they couldn't flat out fire him, so they just reassigned him to a lesser role. And he was pissed and didn't stay silent about it. And the New York Times um, found out that uh, he wrote a, I think it's 81-page complaint. I'm going to have it in front of me. 89-page. Dr. Bright submitted an 89-page complaint outlining um, what he said happened to him, that he was retaliated against for speaking the truth. And the Office of Special Counsel, which is an agency within the executive branch where you're supposed to be able to go as a whistleblower and they kind of represent you. Anyone who works in the federal government has access to the Office of Special Counsel. And the Office of Special Counsel decided, they said, listen, there are reasonable grounds to investigate Dr. Bright's accusations here and that he should be reinstated while the investigation is going on, that he shouldn't have to suffer this retaliation while they're investigating it. Now, their ruling isn't binding, unfortunately. It, and and it, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who oversees this agency, um, the, the vaccine agency, not, uh, not the Office of Special Counsel, he doesn't have to listen to this recommendation. But if he doesn't, there's supposed to be something called the Merit System Protection Board. So this is part of kind of like the civil servant um, process of stuff, bureaucratic process with things. Well, that would be fine and dandy, except there are no members on this Merit Systems Protection Board because the Senate hasn't confirmed any of Trump's nominees to it. So what happens next? We're not quite sure. But Dr. Bright and what he what he wrote in that in those pages, just from what I wrote, what I read, whew, again, talk about drain the swamp. <laughs> no, they're filling the swamp uh, all the way back up. It's outrageous, absolutely outrageous. Um, the Office of Special Counsel said that it uh, made a threshold determination that the Department of Health and Human Services violated the whistle protection blow the whistleblower protection act by removing dr bright from his position because he made protected disclosures in the best interest of the american people that is from the new york times may 8th uh that also says that um this is from dr bright's uh complaint he said i believe this transfer was in response to my insistence that the government invest billions of dollars allocated by congress to address the COVID-19 pandemic into safe and scientifically vetted solutions and not in drugs, vaccines, and other technologies that lack scientific merit. I am speaking out because I am speaking out because to combat this deadly virus, science, not politics or cronyism has to lead the way. Well, amen to that, Dr. Bright. You've got a lot of people out here rooting for you and um, I hope he gets reinstated because those are the kinds of people we need in place to help fight this coronavirus pandemic in a sensible, safe way for the American people. And I think on that note, that's a good good point, good segue to bring in my friend Juliet Kayem to talk a little bit more about what that looks like, what it looks like to reopen the country 
what it looks like as more people die. How do we how do we move forward with this? What does the response look like? So next up, Juliet Cayenne. I'm really, really thrilled to be able to bring back Juliet Kayyem to the program. Not only is she my colleague over at CNN, where she is a uh, CNN national security analyst, but we also became colleagues up at Harvard, where she is a professor. When I was doing my residency, that was tragically cut short. But um, we had an opportunity to be colleagues there, and she's also a former Department of Homeland Security appointee under the Obama administration. She knows what she's talking about. And the issue of this pandemic, the failure of the Trump administration's response to it, she has been ahead of the curve Mm. all the way from the beginning. So welcome back, Juliet Kayam. I'm thrilled to have you. I wish it were under better circumstances. I know. I miss you. Uh, Last time uh, I saw you, we were having mimosas. um, And uh, it's been that The idea of, of that seems so far away. But I'm glad to be here and help out in any way I can. I appreciate you so much. I, uh, knowing your expertise in these things, I've been following you closely yeah. and your comments on this coronavirus pandemic response from the very beginning. And you've been sounding the alarm from the beginning. I mean, I think at first you were hopeful that the federal government's response would be a 50 state response and that the professionals who know what they're doing in this would would prevail. But then you slowly but surely started to see that it wasn't going that way. And you have been the, the voice, uh, the sentinel in the watchtower is a, is, a, is a phrase I like to use a lot about what the hell are we doing? Why is this happening? Um, mm-hmm. Recently on CNN, you just said, we're on our own. Yeah. 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 That was uh, that that was four hours ago. And it seems like um, uh, four days ago. I think we just have to have to realize what's happening and 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 say it that the White House now is signaling more than signaling uh, through a variety of means uh, how they intend on uh, guiding America through this pandemic and how they're going to guide is to essentially pretend like it's not happening. And it's not. So so there's a I would describe it as a combination of both substantive things going on as well as um, more more sort of you know political strategy on the substantive side as the AP reported this morning CDC does have guidance for quote unquote opening up I think the term is 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 loosely used, but nonetheless, um, everywhere from uh, uh, you know places of worship to schools um, to uh, restaurants, like giving it. This is what the federal government does. It gives advice to the homeland. They're trying to figure out what to do. Um, that the White House has uh, put the kibosh on distribution, likely because they don't want to own any piece of it, and it probably was more cautious than Trump wants to be. They are, um, you know, no one's testifying. Um, the the there was a threat of any Ending the task force, um, the president now now he says it's going to continue. The president um, is now openly questioning uh, the number dead. Um, uh, CDC hasn't had a press conference or a briefing, just a substantive briefing, right? Just to tell the American public where we are in months. Um, and so they're basically, after going to war with the governors, they're now basically ceding to the governors because then they can blame the governors. Um, we're opening up too soon. I've said it uh, publicly, but. Uh, but there are ways to open up better than other ways. And um, including uh, because 
we had, you know, the, the federal government, the Trump administration failed on yet another one of its duties, which is, of course, getting an increased testing capacity. So, so look, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I advise a lot of mayors and governors, like you sort of steer, you know, you have to accept reality. And this is the reality now. They are done. Mission accomplished. You know, we failed, whatever thing is, they are done. Um, and we are on our own. Well, you know, you, uh, to, to build on that, you'd been predicting, there was a couple things. I'm, I'm trying to decide yeah. if I want to ask you about Chris, the Chris Christie comments. Yeah. Or about, <laughs> or about um, the failure part. I think I'll go to Chris Christie. You, uh, you, you referred to the fact that the, some of the states, they're not even adhering to the federal government's own guidelines to reopening, right? That's at yeah. the forefront now. Um, it's, it's scary to me how the president's trying to erase what's happening. Mm-hmm. They're trying to act like, oh no, what pandemic? What are you talking about? You know, the, with winding down the coronavirus task force and gaslighting the American people into believing that, well, like you said, mission accomplished. It gave me the willies. It reminded me of when President Bush did that after the Iraq war invasion. And uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the invasion of Af- Afghanistan. It was like, ah, mission accomplished. Like, no, you know, yeah. uh, it's, it was scary. Um, but in the while they're doing that, the conversation is a legitimate one, right? <clears throat> a lot of people are saying, "Okay, we see the economic downturn. We see how this is impacting Americans. How do we weigh the cost between life and death and the economy?" And Chris Christie this week came out with some, you know, a rather harsh assessment. Unsaid, listen, we need to accept the fact that deaths are going to occur, and everybody was very upset about it because it seemed quite callous. And you on Twitter, you said, <laughs> "Okay, I'm bracing myself." <laughs> uh, you, you prefaced it with in parentheses, bracing myself for this so why Boy, is everybody shocked it. right like he you yeah. like, why is everybody shocked he's right isn't this the calculation so explain what you meant by that so that I mean, it is true. This is you know, this has become so political that even someone like me, um, uh, you know, has to brace myself for for you know, in this instance, for for I guess you know, the blue or the Democrats' response. So let's just be clear here: whether you're for aggressive social distancing for months to come, or um, you're for open up and everyone should party again, um, there will be deaths. So the the calculation is is ca- how many deaths over what period of time. Um, uh, uh, and and who is dying? That's my most recent piece in the Atlantic today. So so we have some sense. You know, look, we could have done better. We obviously could have done much better. Fifty percent of our deaths would have not occurred, um, uh, but for nursing homes and elderly care, right? So so that's a lesson, right? So we know that. So so Chris Christie comes on and he says, look, we need to open up sooner than the White House even recommended. And I'm glad you mentioned that. We're, we're opening up well before the loose White House uh, uh, guidelines. Most states are. We need to open up um, and there will be debt, right? And that is true. Uh, social distancing and flattening the curve were never intended to, they, they couldn't combat the virus. Only a, only, a, um, only a vaccine can. So now the calculation is how many dead. And so most scientists, and I'm just a consumer of this stuff. I'm very careful. I just, you know, I, I just follow science and then plan accordingly. Most people in that space say, you know, the the best time, the best way to do this is you open up slowly. You make sure you're over the curve, you open that your health uh, facilities are intact, that you, you know, you haven't been brought to your knees like in Northern Ireland. And then you 
you um, you open up slowly. Social distancing will still be part of our lives in some capacity, or that you know the nature of how we're going to live for the years to come will be very very different until a vaccine. And we begin to sort of re get to know each other. But you prioritize. You prioritize things like the economy. Um, you prioritize things like schools because working mothers like me, you know, it, uh, you can say all you want about recreation. I don't really give a damn. Like I need these kids in school. I can't concentrate. You know? uh, uh, and so that's, um, and so I sort of thought, well, you know, yes, it's crude the way Chris Christie puts it, but I'm doing that too, right? I'm, in other words, I'm thinking of some number, I don't know what the number is of acceptable losses um, in terms of when we should open up. Now, I'm not there yet because I, I haven't I haven't hit my baseline, you know, two weeks of, of numbers going down. So, um, you know, this is more than a gamble, what the United States is doing and what Trump is a, a, essentially promoting, which is opening up way too soon, that we know what's going to happen. I mean, uh, it's not like, oh, hopefully it will be okay. We know what's going to happen, which is um, uh, uh, that we are going to have significantly more deaths than if we weren't so darn impatient and we had leadership that could buckle down for a minute um, and um, and concentrate and just get us a few more weeks, right? No other country has done it uh, uh, like this. Right. I was going to ask you, do you, you know, there's all the, the failures are being documented every single day on the part of this Trump administration, the way that Trump dithered for 10 weeks, the disaster with the CDC and testing, yeah. the Kushner story now that has come out about- I know. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um has there been any country that's done it right? Is there anyone oh, yes. that you can look to? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And that's the crazy thing. So you look at countries like Germany and New Zealand. You look at South Korea, which had some flare ups. Japan is in Japan's in trouble because they opened up too early. They're now back inside. Um, uh, and so and and look, um, Italy is starting to open up slowly. So major parts of Europe, uh, uh, Latin America is in a bit of trouble. We're not they're not over the uh, or South America. They're not over the hump. But there are, Canada is doing great. Um, so there um, because they had leadership that said it's going to be a freaking rough couple months. There is no such thing as as solid economic performance if you're living with a virus that is untamed. I'll talk about that in a second. And um, and we will get through this together. I often like in my alternative universe where Obama is still president, um, not only would he have, you know, known this was coming in January, but let's assume that we were all inside. I know that that president would have had like national like um, fun every night. Like, you know, someone would have read poems and stuff. like, I mean, Trump is just like, it's, it's, it's just, you know, he, he can't lead. He has no capacity to, but I want to talk about the sort of the, 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 the open for business camp and how they've uh, completely uh, misrepresented the social distancing camp. The fact I'm even talking about them as camps means that they've won. Uh, someone who's someone who's a, who, who literally was on the first CNN global town hall. So that was when that was when Sanjay Gupta and Anderson Cooper were in a room with people still, right? Yes, I remember. And and Anderson says to me, "So what's your recommendation?" And I said, "Shut it down." And he goes, "What?" And I go, "Shut it all down." And my mother texted me. She goes, "You sounded really harsh." I was like, "Mom, what do you think is about to happen?" Like, and so we so we we shut it down, right? And but the the expectation was never indefinite. You're shutting down to buy time. And um because you can't
cannot have economic activity with a living vi- with a virus that's untamed because every store is going to close, every restaurant's going to close, our supply chain is going to close, and that's what's going to happen. I said this is not a gamble. I know what's about to happen, um, and so and it could be worse because employees won't be protected. You know, employers were pretty good. Um, I think the only thing that two things sort of you know give me hope, or lots of things give me hope. I mean, one is. Um, um, we will have a lot more tools to work with over just because scientists are great and, and people are smart. Um, uh, we will have uh, a lot more tools to deal with this. The first is going to be obviously treatments and testing. We'll have, we'll have a better sense. Testing will come on board. We might have treatments so that, um, and, and have a capacity to protect vulnerable populations. The, so that's the first. So this, you know, we won't have to go inside likely if we can get these other tools to, to live with the virus. That's what we are going to do for a couple years until we can get a vaccine made and dis- distributed or at least a year. Right. The other is is who knew that the American public was more cautious than uh, uh, than our leadership. I mean, the polling is just clear. Um, you can call it whatever you want, right? But American social norms have changed because of this. Um, in Europe, they call it the empty table economy. They have opened up. People are not showing up to restaurants. I called it in a, in a recent piece in The Atlantic, the, the new Waffle House Index, uh, which means you know, Waffle House is if they, if they close down, it means a hurricane has been really bad. Um, uh, the new index is they can be open, but people won't show. Um, and so, you know, I, there's, a, there's a cautiousness in the American public um, and that's good. That is really good. Well, it shows you that the American public has more common sense than the leadership of this country right now, which uh, which is astonishing. Yeah. Usually in a time of crisis, you would look to the federal government's leadership and expertise to handle it. And we it, we're completely devoid of that. We see it yeah. every single day. And one of those examples, I wanted to talk to you because I know you've had strong feelings about the Jared Kushner story that came yeah. out recently. Um, anytime the, the, the president puts his son-in-law in charge of something, uh, hold on because it's been yeah. a, a failure. And um, and I just don't understand what the obsession is with Jared Kushner. It's the whole thing. I, I as, if, as, if he's, as, if, as if he's ever solved right. anything. Like, anything. I mean, it's just so... Um, so so as you know, I, uh, you know, the ladies love logistics. That's what we always say, because, right. you know, it sort of caters to maybe, I hope, I hope I'm not being too gendered, but like, you know, we, we, you know, we put everything in buckets and we organize well and like, you know, whatever. And so, and that's how I am, you know, in my personal life too, you know, it's, it's, my husband says to me, my husband said, um, uh, you're lucky or you, you never got the stew gene, which is true as to like, I don't stew about stuff. I just put everything into its little pile and like, you know, we'll see what happens. Right. Well, that's and so women, women have to multitask, yeah, right? They're, exactly. God, you God can't loiter. Right. God made us mothers and, you know, the ability to have children because we multitask and, and logistics is part of that. Right. In a, in a, in a, in a certain kind of way. And you talk about actually you, you funny, you brought up logistics because you tweeted on May 5th that the line between disorder and order lies. Yeah. Logistics, which is a Sun Tzu art of war. Um, yeah. Quote. And the Jared Kushner uh, story mentions how he got involved in this shadow operation behind the Corona Task Force's back to try to procure uh, protective personal equipment and testing and all of this. And what a shit show that became. Yeah. How much grifting and just corruption and pro- political favors were being done. And here we are. And you had some strong feelings about that. Right. So, I mean, because one is 
um, every, as, as you know, I, I could give you a thousand quotes about logistics, but you know, everything depends on logistics. You can have a great idea. I think we talked about this before, you know, a crisis has, you know, brains and muscles. So the brains are, what are the ideas? What are we trying to do? Right. What, what, you know, we're trying to get testing kits, you know, PPE, the, the, the muscle is how does it get done? And that's just basically, um, it's, it's not complicated. It's not simple, but it's not like, you know, rocket science. You're just getting stuff moved from point A to point B. So, and it's, it's, you know, there was no proof it was broken. I mean, we were challenged on sort of what commodities we had, but, and so, um, uh, uh, FEMA has a very intricate logistics logistics process. It was being guided by the task force. Um, and then Jared decides, and I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Jared decides to in, uh, uh, to insert himself where the money is, right? There's so much money in logistics in terms of suppliers and stuff. And uh, he sticks a bunch of venture capital people with no uh, background in this. Some of them didn't even get security clearances, uh, throws them in and um, and they just sort of disrupt the system. They didn't accomplish anything. They 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 and basically every Fox News personality who had a friend of a friend of a friend who promised masks or gloves um, had access to FEMA and the White House. That is, I mean, uh, to FEMA and the operations. That is so disruptive. I was thinking. I didn't say this on air or or in, in some of the stuff I'm quoted, but I was thinking like, you know when everyone has a friend of a friend of a friend in a crisis, right? We're used to it. We, the White House would play um, uh, defense for us. In other words, because so many people wanted access to logistics, because that's where the money is, we had a White House that would protect us because they knew it was all crap, right? Um, um, And so, uh, and so, yeah. And and, um, so let's just put it this way. It was so bad that one of his own people from a venture capital firm um, blew the uh, whistle. Blew the whistle. That's right. His own person. Yeah. It is incredible. It's that's when you know it's bad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, anytime Jared Kushner is involved, it's a disaster. But you know it's bad when your own people say, "Okay, this is enough. Enough is enough." Um, the crazy part about this is when you tweeted the other day about FEMA, because you because what happened to FEMA? They were originally yeah. supposed to be put as the agency in charge of this. And however you feel about FEMA, they have a very specific protocol in place and how to execute disaster relief or how to respond disaster response. That's what they do. And I had a friend who he's he I have a friend. He's in the Civil yeah. Air Patrol in the DC area. He's a retired police officer, retired Air Force and he's currently a volunteer with the Civil Air Patrol. And he said to me recently, about a week ago, before you even brought this up, so you were right on target, he said to me that he could not believe how disorganized the FEMA emergency response centers were. Yeah. And how that in the past... All of the things that are executed, all of the processes and the chain of command that are normally in place were completely out of whack this time around. He said they actually didn't have anything to do. He couldn't believe it. He's like, why aren't we running supply chain um, missions to help New York? Why aren't we more involved? Like, what is going on? And they were like, we're just not getting any instructions from Washington. Yeah. No, that's exactly so that's exactly by that. I think that's an underreported story. Right. And also what's interesting is it's not that they're not getting instructions is that their instructions were help the VIPs. Right. And these, I mean, the, the New York Times story had that story. What was it like a dentist like promised it? And here's the problem. It's like, you know, some random friend of Judge Janine's or whatever her name is. Right. Here's the other problem that they document. 
there were valid suppliers who could not get access mm -hmm. to get the stuff to FEMA because FEMA was so focused on this. So, so, you know, I mean, look, I, I, uh, 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 Jared was not doing logistics. He was doing favors, right? That's I mean, this is, this is what he does. Right. That's why um, he's in the White House. Let's be honest. Vicki Ward, who's also a CNN reporter, she's been on my program before, wrote yeah. an amazing book called Kushner Inc. And yes. Promoting it um, again because she really nails how corrupt and um, money hungry and greedy Jared Kushner and Ivanka are and how they have no business being in the White House. I encourage everyone, go read her book <laughs> because yeah. you'll, you'll understand why this is not a shock once you saw Jared Kushner involved in it and and money and favors being done. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. And um and so so you know, it isn't, you know, this isn't benign neglect, everyone. This is, you know, they, as I said, this is a tragedy in three parts. The failure of the White House to acknowledge what was happening in China and prepare us. The failure of the White House to take ownership of, um, of the needs of states and locals in terms of uh, building capacity for them, for everything from testing to PPEs. And then and then uh, we're in our third tragedy, uh, which is what I wrote about today, which is the tragedy to not acknowledge the dead. The president is now openly questioning the modeling. Um, I, we, we shouldn't be surprised anymore. Um, but, you know, he has changed from five dead to 20,000 to now admitting that we're at 100,000. I've been on your show before. Um, we, it will be a blessing if we only get to 100,000 at this at this pace. Yeah. And you were prescient in that also. You, you tweeted out. Um, uh, a couple days before the story came out that Trump would say this, you, you yeah. predicted that he would go after questioning the death tallies because that's part of the propaganda gaslighting of our country to convince us that this is over with and yeah. sensitizing people to it and that you predicted that he would attack the Johns Hopkins data center that has been accurately uh, calculating everything because he has to do that in order to push this narrative that we're, we're past this and he's done such a wonderful job. What In, in our final minute, because um, thank you for being so generous with your time. That's okay. Everyone, follow Juliet, please. Thank she's you. Amazing. She has always been um, uh, ahead of the curve on this. I said this before because she knows what she's talking about and she's unfiltered in her analysis. <laughs> and I appreciate that because I tell it like it is too. And in times like this, we need truth tellers like you that are fact-based, experienced, and un unafraid to tell people this is what the hell is actually going yeah. on. In our final minute, what do you, what words of encouragement or words of warning oh, yeah. do you have for the American people as we continue to navigate this tragedy? Uh, you know, be a hero. I mean, we 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 have vulnerable populations, uh, the elderly and minority, and those that are uh, exposed uh, because they're in service industries. Uh, the best we can do is uh, uh, right now is stay indoors when you can. Um, uh, if you are in a leadership position, let others stay indoors. There's no why that you know. I advise a lot of CEOs. I don't. I my first advice is why are you bringing them back? Like think about it. Right? Do you need it? People are being productive at home, um, wear a mask uh, every time you leave the house and uh, do what the federal government uh, is incapable of doing, which is uh, slow the spread. And each of us individually has the capacity to do it.
Juliet, well said. Uh, and oh, just really quick, is there are there any resources that you suggest people go to since we're it's you can't trust the CDC anymore. Things have been so politicized. It's John. Yeah, go ahead. I've been besides Johns Hopkins. They they're obviously doing a great job. Um, are there any other publications? I've said Stat News is an excellent. Resource. Stat News is that that's, I've been pushing Stat News. It's a it started a couple years ago as a division of the Boston Globe, which is my hometown newspaper, and they are fantastic. They've got the best health and medical um, uh, folks around. And um, and Stat News is it. Fantastic. Juliet Kayam, you can find her on Twitter. Read her columns at The Atlantic. The most recent one is We Need to Know How Many to Grieve. Um, fantastic work from you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, and I'll see you. you. I'll see you soon, hopefully. You got it. Thanks, okay, Juliet. take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Another big thank you to Juliet. I just love her. She's she's just such a tough broad. I love her. Um Depressing stuff, though. Oh, yeah. But at least she tried to end it on a good note, right? <laughs> I always try to at least end heavy conversations on a good note. So the next conversation is actually um, kind of a fun one with my friend Reed Galen of The Lincoln Project. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the ad that drove Donald Trump crazy, why he rage tweeted like an insane person at one o'clock in the morning in response to an ad that The Lincoln Project put out called Morning in America. And, um, you know, Reed worked for other Republicans. Uh, he worked for Bush Cheney and Schwarzenegger. And, and uh, he's been a political operative and message expert for many years. So next up, Reed Galen of the Lincoln Project. Well, it has been a week. And for this week's episode, I've brought on two guests. I have Julia Kayam and also my upcoming guest, Reed Galen. Now, Reed is a former GOP campaign consultant. He worked for Bush and Cheney, worked for McCain, Schwarzenegger, a messaging guy, knows what he's doing. He's also the co-founder of the Lincoln Project, of which I am a senior advisor, in full disclosure. And given the Lincoln Project's, um, let's say, week that they've had, I thought it was important to bring Reed on as one of the co-founders to talk about what the Lincoln Project is, what the Lincoln Project has done to piss off the president of the United States, and tell a lot of people who are trying to get involved in beating Donald Trump how they can get involved. So, Reed Galen, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. I'm so happy to have you. Well, and thank you, Tara, for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, Reed, as I said, it has really been a week. Besides all of the coronavirus news, the unemployment numbers, we're at 14.7%, which we haven't seen since World War II, depression era right. stuff. Um, the Lincoln Project pissed off the president of the United States. I'm going to read what happened, and then I'm going to let you uh, react. So for those sure. who don't know, uh, the Lincoln Project is a PAC and we have put out a lot of ads, basically demonstrating the incompetence of the president of the United States. And this week, an ad was put out called Morning in America, which was a play on Reagan's famous ad, Morning in America, spelled differently. And the president of the United States had a meltdown at one o'clock in the morning, Monday night, after he saw it, we presume, on Fox News, because it aired on Tucker Carlson's show. And he attacked Lincoln Project and its co-founders personally in a series of tweets. Quote, a group of rhino Republicans who failed badly 12 years ago, then again eight years ago, and then got badly beaten by me, a political first-timer four years ago, 
have copied no imagination the concept of an ad from Ronald Reagan Morning in America, doing everything possible to get even for all of their many failures. You see, these loser types don't care about 252 federal judges, two great Supreme Court justices and rebuilt military, a protected Second Amendment, biggest ever tax cuts and regulations, and much more. I didn't use any of them because they don't know how to win. And their so-called Lincoln Project is a disgrace to Honest Abe. I don't know what Kellyanne did to her deranged loser of a husband, Moonface, but it must have been really bad. John Weaver lost big for Kasich to me. Crazed Rick, Rick, Rick Wilson lost for Evan McMuffin McMullen to me. Steve Schmidt and Reed Galvin lost for John McCain. Romney's campaign manager lost big to O. And Jennifer Horn got thrown out of the New Hampshire Republican Party. They're all losers. But Abe Lincoln, Republican, is all smiles. Um, Reed Galvin, <laughs> which is not your name, it's Galen. Reed, right. what was your reaction to this when it happened? Uh, so I'll tell you, I was sitting uh, with my wife. I live in the Mountain Time Zone. I live in Utah. So it was about 1145, uh, and we were about to go to bed, and I, I just you know, decided I'd check my Twitter feed one more time, and I saw all this stuff uh, come across. And, you know, needless to say, I didn't get to bed till probably about 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, I'll tell you that it is a – it is a fascinating and surreal experience to have the president of the United States, someone who we used to call the leader of the free world, attacking you even by the incorrect name uh, on Twitter. And, you know, it, it was like I said, it was it was fascinating. It was surreal. Uh, but it was also, to you know, to be gra- to be honest, gratifying because, you know, we had it. it the, the Morning in America ad was was not one that we just whipped up. It was one that we, we frankly, we, we wrote about a month ago. And we had worked on it, and we didn't feel it was right. We went back, and our creative team, we all worked on it together. And we finally decided to put it out. And I knew that, you know, you know, we're, we have sort of two ways we want to talk to Donald Trump. One is, you know, the audience of one, which we saw worked, obviously. And so we bought time on uh, Fox and Friends. We bought time on Hannity. We bought time on Tucker Carlson. And, you know, based on that, we can assume that he was sitting in the residence of the White House, you know, a place that's been occupied by Lincoln himself and FDR and uh, Dwight Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan and all these other, you know, you know, mythic presidents. And, uh, you know, this was his reaction to it. And I think a couple of things. One was I think that it was so effective with him because it it pierced what I call his reality distortion field, Mm -hmm. right, which was it made him – come to grips with the fact that the that the country and in some places in the world is collapsing and it is not collapsing because the coronavirus exists although it does it, it's collapsing because this president refused to heed the warnings of his intelligence community and epidemiologists and experts now it seems going back to November right where he knew something was was afoot and refused to accept it to believe it and now you can see that he is still unwilling to accept what's going on well we lost i think 2700 americans died yesterday right and and it could be you know this could be friday this could be monday whatever but that's we passed 70 almost 75,000 americans died as you said tens of millions of americans now out of work and so he knows that what he was going to run on, which was an economy not of his making, but of, you know, he, he is taking credit for, uh, that was going to be his pedestal to reelection. 
that is now gone. And so I think the other part too is you saw that you know that that they retreated to what I'm going to call their strategic Alamo, judges. Supreme Court justices, tax cuts, the Second Amendment, and I think those are those are his base issues. This has to be, you know, the last election against Hillary Clinton had to be a base election for him to win, and they know that with his, you know, approval ratings nationally somewhere in the low 40s where they've been, and even lower in a lot of these, you know, target states, that he has to make it a best base election again, and so he cannot win without every last Republican getting fired up, and he knows that. Those are the only issues that they're probably still going to trust him on because the economic issues are gone and he can't stand on any sort of success when it comes to the response around COVID. Don't forget immigration. He can't point to that. Yeah. As, he can't point to that as a success because he's done absolutely nothing to um, improve the illegal immigration problem or border security. That's all been a ruse. He hasn't built one mm-hmm. um, one foot of quote new fence, but he will still use that. He goes back to that um, to rile people up because he knows that the fear of the brown menace, as my colleague at CNN, Chris Cuomo, always talks about, that that gets people riled up too. But he knows. You're right. The base issue. Right, and you know, it's, all that. it's just that he knows it's red meat for them. Right. And, you know, it's interesting he brought up the military piece, too, because I was uh, I was invited to take a tour of a military base uh, back at the beginning of March, which now seems, you know, like 25 years ago. And there was a retired three star general there with us. Uh, and and this person volunteered that the moving of money out of the military budget ostensibly to build this wall was having real tangible effects on military effectiveness. Because as you know, even despite the fact that the, the the military budget, the Pentagon budget in this country is astronomical, when you get down to the operational levels, every every commander, whether or not it's a general, a colonel, a major, a captain, whatever it is, has a budget they have to live within. And so when you take five billion dollars or eight billion dollars, whatever the number is, you're taking training time away, you're taking the shipment of, you know, bombs and missiles or whatever away. You're taking, you know, you know, the war fighters have to do more with less. And so I think that that's one that, that, you know, has not really been prosecuted effectively is that, you know, he does all this, not because, as you said, he's actually building a wall, but for political purposes, but like everything else with Trump, he does things for things for political purposes that end up having very negative real world effects. And that's the irony, too, uh, that he always touts the military. And and like you said, that's one example of how he's actually harmed the military in order to keep up this facade that he's so tough on the border. And as as a conservative, what he did, Mm -hmm. how he manipulated that money, I was horrified by that. And I can remember how conservatives and Tea Party folks and Republicans were so upset with Barack Obama for him uh, accusing him of being an imperial president and, oh, you know, the power of the purse is in Congress and how dare he. Could you imagine if Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton tried to pull a stunt like that? It, 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 they never would have gotten away with it. it the hypocrisy is, is absurd. No, they would have demanded impeachment for violating Article 1 of the Constitution. Absolutely. And it's just, you know, one of a laundry list of things. Um... One of the other things that I think, well, I'll let you, what, what, what do you think it was when you saw the, the personal attacks and the absolute meltdown? Mm-hmm. I mean, even the attacks against George Conway and bringing in that stuff about Kellyanne and calling George Moonface. And I mean, you all are losers. And, you know, we had on our, on our, on our email uh, chain, 
I responded back. I was like, I'm proud to be a part of this merry band of losers. You know, I mean, <laughs> right? It's just, it's just the 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 petulance and the absurdity of it all is it would sure. be funny if it weren't the fact that the president of the United States is doing this. Right. You wrote a piece about this where you said that you know the ad did what we wanted it to do. What what was that? What was your reaction to that? Because I think people need to realize that I don't think anybody's feelings were hurt. You know, we're we're, we're no. You know, pretty tough here. It's a tough business, but you got to think about like this is coming from the president of the United States. What you know, what what were you guys thinking at the time when you saw that? Sure. Well, I'll say, I'll say this. You know, I mean, you know, so there were the tweets, the midnight tweets, and so you know what I wrote in the piece is, uh, you know, it's at NBC. Uh, is that you know you hope at the one o'clock in the morning that the president of the United States is getting a good night's sleep, having reflected on the day's work, especially in a crisis like this, and is preparing for the next day of responding to a crisis. But what was he doing instead? You know, watching his daily, you know, his evening dose of Fox News, like every other cranky old guy in America, right, screaming at the television. Over 70. <laughs> uh, over 70, screaming at the television, right, like so many so many people I actually know. Um, and, you know, attacking a bunch of political consultants, right, when he should be focused on, you know, uh, you know, dealing with with the response to COVID and the economic you know collapse that we're seeing accompanying it, and so you know, look, I, let me just tell you about this. I mean, we spent less than ten thousand dollars creating that advertising, right? That that spot, and we spent about I think somewhere like five thousand, six thousand dollars actually buying that one commercial on Tucker Carlson's show, right? Now we spent more money on other shows, but just for just to give you a sense of of the reaction. We spent $15,000 to get the leader of the free world to give us a week's worth of attention, his campaign, a week's worth of attention. And, you know, we've raised $2 million off of this week alone. And, you know, what it says to us is it exactly proved our point. For $15,000, a bunch of political consultants could provoke the president of the United States to do anything other than his job. And if we can do it, think about any other person in the world, any other American adversary in the world who has a heck of a lot more resources and a heck of a lot more ways to do this stuff that get him off, you know, off the, the, the job of being the president of the United States, the leader of the world, the national conciliator, the national manager. And I think it's a perfect example, a perfect illustration of why Trump was unprepared to be president in three years, never understood the seriousness of it. And when a crisis finally hit, all of the things that he has been able to do for 70 plus years, which was basically bent his reality to his will, you know, now came crashing down around him because the coronavirus doesn't care what he thinks or what he wants. Because it's a genius. It's a genius virus, as Trump says. <laughs> right. And I think that's really an important thing, too, right? He talks about how this is the invisible enemy. Right. It was invisible, but it wasn't unknown. Correct. Right. Like we knew it was coming, even if you can't see it except under a microscope. It wasn't a secret to anybody. I mean, this is the, the government of the United States. It has literally more resources than any organization in the history of mankind. They knew it was coming. And the president who runs that organization refused to do anything about it. That's correct. And more and more uh, evidence of that is coming out with great reporting from The Times and The Post about how, you know, the intelligence community warned him. It was in his presidential daily brief. He doesn't read them because the president doesn't read. And when he was right. finally cornered about it in January, the end of January, by the Health and Human Services Secretary, Secretary Azar, he didn't care. He was talking about he was more obsessed with vape, uh, vaping 
before he even got to the to the coronavirus part of that conversation after two weeks of the Health and Human Services Secretary trying to get his attention to pay attention to this. And then the rest we know, 10 weeks of dithering and downplaying it and flat out lying to the American people. And here we have a body count continuing. It's it's very, very frustrating. Something that you just Right. And, I, and I, think, I think you also see that, you know, this week there was the story that he was, you know, thinking about shutting down the... Um, the task force. Shutting down the, the task force. And I think that, he, you know, he said, well, I was thinking about it, but I got, you know, I talked to many people and it's been so popular. He was going to shut it down. I think this is why you saw Haley McEnany now taking the the podium again because he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. Well, I think sure. he's, you know, in his in his twisted world, he's bored with it, and it's not something he can he could do something about it. It's not something he's willing or currently able to do something about. So he just wants to move on from it. And unfortunately, you know, all 320 million of us are unable to move on from it. Even though there's a lot of us like me who's lucky enough to work from home, but millions of people who are out of work or have to go out into this world to get their jobs done. And he's like, I just don't want to talk about it anymore. Right. Right? Like, that's just not an acceptable position for the president. Right. And especially when the crisis is far from averted, it's ongoing and getting worse in many parts of the country. And I, during yeah. the conversation with Juliet Kayem, we talked about this. If it's out of sight, out of mind, well, you're on your own, people. Yeah, this we're over it now. You're on your own. We got to get the economy open back up. And it's like, wait, what? This is not a this is not a, a healthy response to what's going on here. You can't just wish it away. But it's very Orwellian in many in many ways. And I just hope that more Americans are hip to what's going on and don't let them get away with it. Something that stood out mm-hmm. to me in our uh, in your comments before was that. We only spent $15,000 and ended up raising $2 million. This is the first mm-hmm. I've heard the $2 million number because the last I saw, it was like $1.4 million in two days. It's been four days, five days now. $2 million mm-hmm. raised. Even Carl Rove on Fox News acknowledged that it was mission accomplished for what you guys did by Trump giving mm-hmm. so much attention to the ad. It's a Carl Rove on Trump lashing out at Rhino rhinos for COVID attack ads that he gave them what they wanted. I don't think anybody expected it to be as big as it was. I know Rick Wilson said, we didn't think this was the ad that was going to send them over, but all right, we'll take it. <laughs> Is that true? Sure. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's right. Again, I think there was the, Again, you know, when when it comes to President Trump, you always know that there's an audience of one. And if you keep after him and you do things the right way, um, you know, just like everything else, right? You can have, you can be creative and you can plan and you can and you can operate. Um, and all of those things eventually mean that you know luck will turn your way. And and you know, you know, the fact that not only did he see it, but he said it. He saw it the day after he was at the Lincoln Memorial, where he could not have looked smaller sitting at the foot of the 16th president of the United yes. States and our namesake, yeah. uh, I think just, you know, got him all the more riled up. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, we will, this is, again, you know, it's a, it's a, strate- you know, it's, was it's, that a, a, it's a one minute ad. The timing, I'm sorry? Was that timing a coincidence or did you guys know that he was going to do that town hall? In- no, no, look, as, as, we, as, as John Weaver and other of our co-founders said, you know, sometimes the political gods smile on you and they do it this time. That's great. I thought so. Because I, I, I thought so. I said, oh my God, the timing couldn't have been any better because that was a shit show on Sunday night in front of the Lincoln Memorial, a complete embarrassment. And then the next day, Lincoln Project comes out with this devastating ad. And I think that he just he just couldn't take it. Um, There was an interesting twist on this that um, I didn't Mm -hmm. necessarily see coming. 
and <laughs> leave it to Rick, our buddy Rick Wilson, to um, say that he he said he was in a he was in a G damn mood the other day, and I was like, well, what's going on? And then I saw Rick Wilson blast typical fuckery after Facebook slaps warning label on Lincoln Project's anti-Trump ad that was in Mediaite. What happened? Yeah. What the hell is Facebook doing censoring our ad? Sure. So um, we got the yeah we you know our digital team and they you know they're the best in the business as far as I'm concerned with the with the amount of with the amount of work we lay on them and the amount of resources we're able to give to them they they certainly punch above their weight and um, so uh, Politifact had decided you know and I don't know how they make the decisions um, to to rate our ad and in the 60 seconds there is one uh, there is one line in there that said. Uh, Trump bailed out Wall Street, but not Main Street. Right. And, you know, with all of our advertising, we do, you know, what's called an ad fast document to make sure that there's nothing that we can't back up. Well, the the reporter, I don't know, the, the person at PolitiFact called someone and said, what do you think? And the guy said, it, you know, at least the way it reads to me offhandedly, well, I guess he sort of bailed out everybody. And so they marked our ad as, as um, uh, misleading or false. And uh, and so I guess whatever system, they, whatever deal they have with Facebook, as soon as that advertising was labeled false by a politifact, then it, it automatically gets a misleading flag on the Facebook, you know, on the, your, your ad gets a Facebook flag as, as being false or, or misleading. And uh, we talked to several people at Facebook. They said there was nothing they could do about it. And, you know, what I said to them, and I, you know, basically got the verbal, you know, uh, equivalent of a shrug was, well, I said, you know, you have QAnon, you have the Pizzagate people, you have the Alex Jones people, you have Laura Ingram with her hydrochloroquine nuttiness every night. And what you're saying is, is that they choose not to, to, to rate any of those things, which are clearly bananas, um, but they choose ours and then you do this. And they're like, sorry, nothing we can do about it. And so from our perspective, you know, like, look, look how much money the Trump campaign spends with Facebook, right? Look at what Facebook has been able to do. Look at, look at the, the as, as, as one of our founders said to me on the phone this morning, look at the sewer pipe of, of stuff that Facebook allows to spill in to our our political and and social media consciousness, mm-hmm. and our ad with a two second remark about the fact that you know the L.A. Lakers and Ruth's Chris Steakhouse get bailouts, but the average American gets twelve hundred bucks. That's misleading and false. Like we we say we got you know we got zucked. That's right. that's that's what we say. And you know and and it's I think it's a perfect example of when you have masses of power. Um, that are, you know, regulated by, you know, people that may, that have agendas that the American people can't, you know, can't see and not necessarily divine, you know, mixed with a president who, you know, look, he's going to be able to, I guarantee you, whatever craziness he comes up with to put on Facebook, they'll run, right? But, you know, we say that Trump bailed out Wall Street. Oh, that's a bridge too far. Right. It's uh, the, the double standard is really frustrating, especially... Um, at a time where we all know that Facebook did not do its due diligence during the 2016 campaign, allowed a lot of that Russian propaganda and misinformation to be trafficked all throughout Facebook and continues to be. Uh, Mm -hmm. Rick, uh, when he came to my Harvard class, 
he talked about how he, you know, all of very, very descriptive words about what we should do on <laughs> Facebook, which was fantastic. But, you know, he is no fan of it because he realizes that Facebook is not, it's being used for malign purposes. And that was before this, you know, he's like, listen, right. everyone should, he's like, Facebook headquarters should be raised and the earth salted over because it's just, it's just, it's not helping it's it's being the disinformation that's coming out of there and now political bias it's interesting because it was the conservatives that complained and bitched about facebook not being fair and social media companies censoring them um is that you know is it really because they seem like they're in cahoots with the trump campaign because they are dropping tens of millions of dollars and they have more money to spend so whose side mm. do you really think they're on it's um it's too bad because a lot of people over 50 they go to facebook it's their number one source for news yeah, and look, you know, I mean, you know, I guess I, I can say a qualified thank you to Facebook as well because, uh, you know, this, this, you know, this, this, your little sixty, you know, this one little minute of content has has, you know, exposed a heck of a lot of, of you know, men behind the curtains, and and um, and I think it's it's you know this we see this as like an ongoing thing, right? Like we will not stop. Uh, you know, we will if, if Facebook is going to do this to us, we will, you know, just like the president has made such a, you know, example of we'll take our message straight to the people Look, we raised one hundred fifty thousand. We recruited one hundred fifty thousand people. I think another 10 or 11 or 15,000, whatever it is, just this week to our cause organically. Uh, we have 25,000 new donors just this week based on all of this activity and all this attention. And we're going to use this. We're going to double down on it. We're going to take our message into these target states. We're not going to leave the president alone. And you know what? I, I you know, get to ride aboard this pirate ship. And, you know, the good news is, is that when you believe, uh, you know, as, as Abraham Lincoln said in, in, you know, the speech that launched his really national political career, that right makes might. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it gets you up every morning. It makes you work hard every night. And it lets you go to sleep every evening with a clear conscience. Amen to that, Reed Galvin. Um, <laughs> I love it. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, when I was reading the tweets, uh, the, the attack by Trump, he, he um, misnamed Reed Galen. It's Galen, not Galvin. And he changed, Reed has now changed his Twitter um, nickname to the real Reed Galvin. It's hilarious. So he's forever Reed Galvin to all of us. Um, <laughs> Since we talk, we're talking about money and and you know kind of what's going on and some of the criticism that's being the incoming now that Lincoln Project is getting. Mm-hmm. Can you please explain to the listeners because a lot of people don't understand how this works? Explain exactly sure. what a pack is and how the money is being used because Red State and other. Uh, Trump sycophants in the media are trying to make it seem as though you and George and 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 John and Rick are all just a bunch of grifters trying to make money. Right. That all of these donors and this money, you guys are getting enriched by this. So, what is a right. pack, and where is the money going? Well, sure. So, I mean, a pack is just like it's just it's a political committee that it's you know that accepts contributions uh, and produces political content for you know typically for the uh, in opposition or support of a of a political candidate independent of that candidate's campaign. Right. So we can't coordinate with Joe Biden or anybody else. Right. We're we're independent. Um, I think that what you about know, look, donor limits? Are there any limits on how people? Yeah, on a super PAC, there are, yeah, on a super PAC, there are no donor limits. You must be an American citizen to give, but there are no limits on that. But as a 
you know, look, our average contribution is $60, right? So like, this is not, you know, we, we are not, you know, we have not enjoyed the largesse of, you know, six and seven figure contributions like a lot of other people do. We, this thing is, you know, I know it sounds hokey, but this thing is people powered and yeah, you know, look, I mean, there is a lot, there are a lot better ways especially in politics, especially as a Republican, even a former Republican in politics to make a lot of money than to be a, an anti-Trump conservative or Republican, right? That's in fact, sure. it's, a, it's a damn sight easier to make money to, if you just sort of ride in Trump's wake because there's a hell of a lot of cash that flows out of that ecosystem. Yep. And so, yeah, look, I mean, they, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, all of this goes to, you know, a few of you. Well, first of all, you know, this is a homegrown operation. Second of all, we do all the work ourselves. And third of all, if you look at how we spend our money, it's highly efficient. Uh, we spend the vast majority of our money. I think we spend about 90% of the dollars we use uh, goes to, you know, goes to the production of or the uh, the advertising of the content that we create. We try and keep our overhead, you know, 10% or below. And I think that that's a perfectly acceptable number when it comes to politics. Uh, and we'll continue to do that. And, you know, whenever, whenever they say we're grifters, I always say, oh, we are? Well, why don't you go talk to Brad Parscale about his $2.5 million Port Everglades mansion or his $400,000 yacht or his Ferrari or his Range Rover or his condos or the $40 million that have been run through his, you know, his company to enrich the likes of, you know, Tara, uh, not Tara, Lara Trump and, and Kimberly Guilfoyle. And, you know, if you want to put up the grifter ledger, you know, I think it's going to be heavily weighted on their side as opposed to the guys who are just trying to do a little bit of work. And let me just say this, too, Tara, as, as you know, example of, you know, the kind of effect we have on these people. You know, Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, decided she had to write a whole op-ed about what grifters we were. And as we understand it, she shopped it to every, you know, outlet in Washington, D.C., and nobody would have anything to do with it. They finally put it in the Daily Caller, you know, that very highly respected right. mainstream uh, instrument. And, you know, I think it goes to show you that they, um, you know, they, they understand that that is a weak spot for them because I think, you know, look, even as just a, a material matter, I think the Trump campaign has raised something like $840 million since he took office, right? Because they restarted his, his re-election campaign the day he took office. That's right. And since then, they've spent like $690 million of it. Okay, so like in the three years of being a, an incumbent president, they're sitting on like $150 million in cash. It's probably some more now because they're raising every day. That is, a, that is an absolute criminal way to spend – political money. And like when Trump says, I'm going to sue Brad Parscale, if, pa if Parscale wasn't the funnel to so much money that's going God knows where, like they'd probably fire him tomorrow because he's not very good at his job. Um, and right. so like, right. you know, if, if, if spending $700 million to get your, your incumbent president to 40% approval and down in every major state, like you haven't spent your money correctly. And it's just an example of how you know, they're going to call us every name in the book because Donald Trump is at best when he's projecting. Indeed, he projects. If you ever want to know if, what what Donald Trump really is, just read his Twitter feed because everything he accuses everyone else of, he actually is. He really is the king of projection. It's uncanny. And Brad mm. Parscale, for people who may not know, is Donald Trump's campaign manager. He started out as a website creator, uh, some little known guy that was making websites and became part of the digital operation during 2016 and made tens of millions of dollars 
through his work with the Trump campaign. They made him the campaign manager for 2020 for now. We'll see how long that lasts. And like right. Reed just said, this guy has completely enriched himself. If you don't believe us, Google it. It's all out there. Um, right. As, as, as Stuart Stevens said on Twitter the other day, Parscale spends money like the guys in Goodfellas after the Lufthansa heist. Yes. Right. Great he wasn't he wasn't smart about it, you know, in, in keeping it in an account somewhere that no one could see it. He went out and flashed it around as fast as he could. That's right. He bought the Cadillac and the furs and everything else. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> Goodfellas is a great movie. Are you kidding? It's one of the best movies Indeed. ever made. So. so many metaphors for life. I'm telling you, it's so funny. And, and great memes, by the way. Great memes. Of course. Um, so uh, we have a couple more minutes, and I just wanted to get your sure. thoughts on a couple other things, news of the day. Um, can what, what did you think? What were your thoughts when you found out that the DOJ dropped charges against Michael Flynn? Um, you know, I, I, nothing surprises me anymore. So, um, you know, this didn't surprise me. I, I, you know, I was confused by the, the, the legal process of it. I, I did not realize that once someone had pled guilty and that 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 plea had had been accepted by the judge that that the that the prosecutors that could then drop the charges and make it all go away I, right. I don't think it's quite as easy as everybody's talking about I think that the judge has to decide that I think it's if if it's Judge Amy Berman Jackson who I think has been trying a lot of these cases I think it's she Sullivan. has to be okay with oh, Sullivan yeah. um, has to be okay with that and, and you know I so, you know remember federal judges live serve for life so we shouldn't be we shouldn't assume that this judge will go along just because you know the prosecutors have said so um but i think it is you know um Another indication, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, you know, uh, Steve Bannon, the, the president's one time political guru, is a self-described Leninist. And his, you know, his stated goal of the Trump presidency was to dismantle the administrative state. Uh, and certainly the, you know, the rule of law uh, is, a, is a crucial component of that. And I will I think we will look back on this and say that, you know, it. It, it was not only uh, it was a pretty scary thing how quickly Trump and his cronies were able to really do that uh, in, you know, in just one four year term. And I think it's going to take a lot of reconstruction. I think it further dismantles the belief in American institutions, which were already suffering a crisis of confidence with with individual Americans. And so I, I think that, you know, this, you know, it's it's typical strongman thing, right? Make, dis, discredit anybody and everybody. Um, that, you know, you can, and, you know, then you're able to sort of run roughshod over things you want to. And you see this too with the inspectors general and everybody else that anybody that can hold Trump to account that he controls, uh, he moves out or silences. And it's, you know, it's just, again, added to the ever growing scroll of why Trump should, you know, not be returned to office. The idea of the destruction of rule of law, uh, is something that for many of us who have been lifelong Republicans and conservatives have been horrified by from day one with him. Uh, and I would presume that that was part of the impetus for the, the creation of the Lincoln project. What, uh, what made you finally, you got, you guys, you and George and, and the rest of the mm -hmm. group there, what was the final straw for you guys where you finally said, that's it, we've got to do something? How did the Lincoln Project start? So, um, you know, I, I think that I know, I'll speak for myself on this. I mean, the, the, the real impetus of it was, um, you know, uh, a, con a phone call between uh, Rick Wilson, John Weaver, Steve Schmidt and I last September um, where, you know, we we decided that, look, we, we none of us live in Washington, D.C. None of us have really political economics. 
right? Like we have a lot of friends, dear friends, friends for years who like may dislike Donald Trump intensely, but they are part of the Republican economic system, right? They, if they turn on him, they lose every bit of business. They have employees, they have this, they have that to take care of. Like we all live well outside Washington, D.C. and don't, you know, or don't have to abide by that sort of mafia like, you know, allegiance to, to anybody, you know, inside the beltway. And so, you know, we said, look, there are, there are, you know, I, I'm not a fan of the quote, never Trump tag, uh, but you know, it is what it is. And I think that there are a lot of groups out there who do very, very good work, but you have to, you, you have to decide at some point that you're going to burn your boats and you can be, it's, it's very hard, I think, to be anti-Trump and be pro-Republican, because right. in my mind anyway, the, the two things are inextricably combined at this point. And so from our perspective, you had to be okay with the idea that being anti-Trump also meant being anti-Republican in its current iteration. Now, does that mean that we believe it can come back? Maybe it can. Does that mean that we'll be somehow involved in the future? I don't know. That's up for everybody's individual decision-making. Uh, but from our perspective, it's, you know, what the, the Donald Trump and the Republican Party, uh, you know, have, have erased every last ideal, every last bit of conscience they might have once had, every last reason why, you know, you became a Republican or you were a Republican. And so from our perspective, you know what, they're part and parcel. And we're going to go after all of them. And I think that's hard for a lot of folks because they don't want to say, well, you helped Joe Biden or you helped this Democrat. Like, you know what? In my mind, you know, when we started this in mid-December, it was about the republic, right? Like the future of the republic mm -hmm. in, you know, pretty lofty terms. Now it's, look, politics really is a life and death business. Right. And we see that when you have someone who has no scruples, is not only, you know, is, is amoral and, uh, you know, who has turned what was otherwise one of the greatest institutions for freedom in the history of the world into nothing better than a gang that is out for personal gain and, and collection of power, uh, then you know what? It's a binary choice. We're not going to help Republicans. And if that means that we have to help Democrats to clean out the bad wood and, you know, start to let this thing heal so we can have a healthy political system again, then that's what we're going to do. Uh, you worked for, for Bush Cheney uh, on the campaign mm -hmm. and also in the White House. Uh, sure. Do you have a good story? Because I think that you know people need to hear that we are not just disgruntled and this is something personal. We're you know we're butthurt or whatever the stupid terms sure. these Trumpers use and you know nobody's a loser and all of this. Like it's just so ridiculous. Most of us are are people who had dedicated our professional lives to Republican mm -hmm. politics, to serving uh, uh, people who we believe were honorable, who had this country and the, the, the citizens' interests first, and, you know, worked very hard at that. And we've seen it all crumble, as you just described, under Donald sure. Trump and the way the party has just been completely perverted throughout all of this. And we're sick of it. Um, a lot of folks have great stories and experiences about working for the Bush administration and are just mm -hmm. so the contrast is just mind blowing. Do you have an example that you want to share with people about what it was like to work in the Bush White House compared to what you see now? Um, yeah, I mean, well, first and foremost, I mean, I mean, I go back to I, I worked for George W. Bush starting 
all the way back to when he was still a first-term governor in Texas because I went to UT in Austin, so I was lucky enough to intern uh, that far back. And, um, you know, I think just look at, you know, think about the things that, that the pre- President Bush uh, was focused on when he first took office pre-9-11, obviously. You know, he passed massive education reform with Teddy Kennedy, right? Now, whether or not you agree or disagree with whether or not, you know, it was a good system or a bad system, this was a Republican president focused on making public education better, right? right? Even as late as 2007, right, again, with a Teddy Kennedy and a John McCain trying and almost getting immigration reform done, right? If you look at, you know, I think what might be President Bush's longest lasting legacy of PEPFAR in Africa, right. right, which, you know, has, has saved millions, maybe tens of millions of lives in Africa with, you know, a, you know, reduction in AIDS infections and AIDS related deaths. And so from my perspective, you know, it was, you know. President Bush was, a, you know, he was a tough boss, right? And I mean, I could, you know, I was an advanced man, right? So I, I saw him every week on the road, and and you know, if you weren't doing his job, he couldn't do his job, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, from my perspective, the real loss here is a is a is a level of humanity that I think President Bush had, which was this, my, you know, I am a servant. Uh, you know, I serve this office. I serve this people. You know, I mean, I know it sounds hokey, but like he never entered the Oval Office without a, you know, without a coat and tie. On, that's right. Right. And I know that sounds hokey and sounds old fashioned. I mean, it was one, something his dad did, too. But at the end of the day, like there was a genuine humanity to, you know, trying to make the country a better place. And I'm not getting into the arguments about policy or the ways those policies were performed or, you know, executed or pursued. What I'm saying is that I think at the end of the day, people went there with a higher purpose. I think President Bush went to went to work with a higher purpose, just like his dad did, just like Obama, I believe Clinton, Reagan, everybody else did. You know, it was not myself first, right? Because as you know, if you do that in the presidency, it will eat you alive. This that's is right. why, I mean, Trump doesn't have real hair, or his hair isn't real, but that's why you see, like, you saw what Clinton looked like when he took office and what he looked like when he left, Bush and Obama, right? They go in with brown hair, they come out with white hair. Um, Trump is not burdened by anything but his own, you know, his own place in the world, which is, you know, he is, he, it is the Trump, you know, it is, a, you know, what is it called? Trump-centric, right? Like, it's not heliocentric, it's not American-centric, it's Trump-centric, right? He is at the middle of his own universe every day and all the time. And I think that's the biggest difference is when those people go to work every day, you know, and they, and they have the honor and the opportunity to walk inside those gates in Pennsylvania Avenue. And believe me, it's a really cool thing. It is. It's really cool to be able to go work at the White House every day. That is a neat thing, right? I felt um, on Capitol Hill, I, and I never worked in the White House. I've been there for events, but I felt the same way when I worked at Capitol Hill. For seven years, I was proud to go to work every day, and my heart still fluttered every time I saw the Capitol Dome from my office window. Every day for seven seven years. And and, and so I think now, I I don't know what those folks think when they go to work every day. I, I have to assume I know a few of them, you know, that there's probably some of them that tell themselves, if I weren't here, 
either this job wouldn't be getting done or it would be getting done badly. But I think there are a lot more there who unfortunately have decided that Trump is their meal ticket. Yeah. You know, he's their ticket to something greater, you know, whether or not it's financially or public exposure, whatever it is. And, you know, the, it's it's Trump first, themselves second. And, you know, the country and the citizens they're supposed to serve are, you know, somewhere out in the hinterlands. I would say the rest, everybody else be damned because it's clear that, they, <laughs> that they're really right. not thinking about the fallout. It's all about political expediency and uh, everybody else is on their own. It's collateral damage that they're willing to accept for their own egotistical um, you know, trips and, and for, for political victories in their minds. It's, it's perverse. You're right. Um, before we wrap up, uh, one last thing about George Bush, which I know that you can attest to. Uh, George Bush never had to, George W. Bush, never had to justify how hard he worked in the White House. You know, he was there, he was up at 4 a.m., out for a run or a bike ride, and in the Oval Office by 6 a.m. getting uh, intelligence briefings. People notoriously would talk about how what an early riser he was and how hard he worked. And you never had to you know, wonder, was he uh, you know, sitting around obsessing over Fox News or newspaper coverage while he was you know, chowing down on hamburgers? It, it, that was never right. something anybody ever questioned about George W. Bush. And never did anybody have to put out a story to justify what he was doing. No, that's for sure. And as I said, you know, being a guy who traveled uh, for, you know, I think I, I think I was on the road 49 weeks in 2002. I can tell you that 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 efficiency also led to some times when, um, you know, he would land 45 minutes before something was supposed to start. Mm-hmm. And we'd say, well, you got to sit on the plane. You got to sit in this room. And he would say, well, I don't want to sit anywhere. Let's get going. I said, well, sir, the people aren't here yet. That's right. <laughs> the people are still coming and they want to see you. So can we please and say yes? No, for sure. He, you know, he was very respectful of, you know, he, the time he had. He was respectful of other people's time. Um, you know, he, you know, look, this was a, this was a guy who certainly very strong, you know, uh, uh, passions, very strong, you know, beliefs and things. Um, but at the end of the day, I think he, he went to the, he went into that office and sat behind that desk every day with, with what he believed was a charge to do something far better and far greater than himself. And, and I remember his admonition to us as the reelection campaign started in 2004, which is, you know, all of us being here is a lot more important than just about marking time, right? Yes. It's about doing what we can to move this country forward, move these people forward, solve these problems. And we're a long way from that, unfortunately. For sure. Um, that's great. I, I always like to have insight from people who actually were on the ground and worked and to give people a sense of contrast, because I think it cannot get lost of what this, that, that what's going on right now is so abnormal and so aberrant and so blasphemous and disgusting mm-hmm. that we cannot normalize this under any circumstances. Because if we do, I fear for what the future of the republic looks like. And that's part of sure. the mission of what Lincoln Project is doing and why the work that Lincoln Project is doing is so important. What is next? What's up on the next? Tell people what to expect from Lincoln Project. What if, what if, what if people have something to look forward to? Uh, uh, a lot more. Uh, you know, we will be we will be uh, on the airwaves. Uh, you know, continuously between now and November. Uh, you know, it won't always be the biggest stuff, but I'll tell you this. You know, we're we are not an infantry battalion. We are a cruise <laughs> missile. Um, and so, you know, it, it, you know, if you might not always see it in your backyard, but please know that the people and the voters that need to see it and need to hear it are seeing it. And obviously, you know. 
We're always on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, on our website at LincolnProject.us. Um, you know, we'll be making a lot of noise. And, you know, look, every day that a guy like Donald Trump is fighting us uh, is, is sadly a day he's not fighting for the American people. Uh, but from a political perspective, also means a day he's not focused on, you know, his own reelection campaign. So, you know, we will be the mosquitoes that he just keeps slapping at. And, you know, when he wakes up on uh, Wednesday, November 4th, he'll find out that he's not going to be president a second time, but that he better start uh, measuring the drapes for his condo at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> That's right. Since he gave up his residency in New York, right? He's a Florida resident now. Uh- right. That's great. If people want to get involved, they can go to LincolnProject.us, sign up, sign up for uh, email alerts so you can be the first to find out when the new ads come out. If you're so inclined to dedicate some some funds to help the effort, you're welcome to do that. I think, um, uh, you know, any amount, if it's a dollar, if it's a hundred dollars, that's welcomed because you see the work that's going on and you see the, the product and, what's, and what it's about. And if you want to be a part of it, the more the merrier. Uh, Reed Galen, thank you so much. Also known as Reed Galvin by the President of the United States. It has been a pleasure, my friend, and it is a pleasure to work with you guys. And keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Sarah. Thanks for everything you do, and, and thanks for having me on today. You got it. Again, another big thank you to both my guests this week, Juliet Kayam and Reed Galen of the Lincoln Project, and. Juliet over there at Harvard. Um, So before I end this episode, I just wanted to acknowledge that it is National Nurses Week. And if we can do whatever you can, if you know a nurse, if you um, have the ability to pay for a meal or donate money to your local hospitals or restaurants that are serving uh, meals to first responders, please do that. Recognize nurses. They are really on the front line and they are getting the brunt of this. And, um, you know, Donald Trump was disrespectful this week when he had his photo op with some nurses who were in the Oval Office. It was supposed to be to honor them. A nurse was um, honest. She was from New Orleans. She was honest about the shortage of PPE around the country. And she said it was sporadic, but they were managing. Trump was to jerk off to her and snippy and tried to cut her off because he didn't like the fact that she was being honest about the fact there were shortages. And it's just, you know, it's just another example of him just being an asshole. But we don't have to be. We will be nice to our nurses and healthcare staff since it's National Nurse Week through March. Uh, I'm sorry, through May 12th. Be sure to um, do what you can to show your gratitude for what they're doing on the front lines to save lives and putting themselves at risk to do it. So, kudos to them. We pray for them and their families. And one other thing, Mother's Day is coming up. Be nice to mom. Make sure that you. Um, do everything you can to honor your moms. I love my mom. She is the greatest. And um, I uh, I always look forward to, to Mother's Day where I can post pictures. So when you follow me on social media, send me pictures of you and your mom. I want to see them. I want to see where you come from because <laughs> I'm always showing off my mom. So uh, let me see yours. Follow me at Tara Setmayer on Twitter, at the Tara Setmayer on Instagram, and at honestly underscore Tara. Be sure to follow the podcast Twitter feed, please. And uh, send me pictures of mom. So happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. And um, God bless you guys and stay safe. See you next week.